Welcome to World House Radio Stories of Home. I'm Sarah Tranum, host of this weekly podcast that brings you interviews with leaders and innovators in the fields of housing and design. Each week we will discuss the issues and solutions surrounding housing from the local and global perspective. Today we welcome Dr. Mitchell Joachim to World House Radio. He completed his doctorate at MIT in architecture, design, and computation. He also has two graduate degrees, a master's in architecture from Columbia University and a master's in urban design from Harvard. And he is the co-creator of the Fab Treehab. The theme of this week's show is the construction system of the home. The Fab Tree Hub offers a very interesting alternative construction system. Instead of building, this project offers us the opportunity to grow a home. Dr. Joachim, thank you for being a guest on World House Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Can you provide an overview of the Fab Tree Hub and the inspiration behind the project? Uh, it, uh, yeah, it started at MIT uh, with the new president, uh, Susan Hockenfeld sent out a directive, uh, which essentially was uh, to stop uh, global warming and, and to deal with the uh, ensuing energy crises. And this was kind of a, a cross-platform directive from all disciplines. And it was privileged over other forms of study, uh, meaning that something like cancer is certainly very important, but that laboratories, researchers, and professors that were going to study the energy crisis would uh, get more lab space and potential funding than uh, other studies at MIT. So as an institution, it can do that. Uh, we were confronted in architecture with, uh, with rethinking building technology. And I think the, the, the report, uh, Dr. Monet's head of physics prepared it, uh, said that uh, in order to deal with the, the energy crisis, we needed a 300% increase in how uh, we perform with uh, buildings, the overall building performance, which uh, seems to be, well, not absurd, but uh, almost impossible. So we went ahead and, and began to rethink how we do everything in building, the whole life cycle. Uh, and we entered a competition uh, after we had come up with some of these ideas. Later we called it Fab Treehab, and that's kind of how it, uh, it all started. Um, the inspiration, though, is uh, um, from a more, more Thorovian in nature. Well, Javier Urbana uh, and Dr. Larry Graydon, uh, my two colleagues that worked on the project with me, have all been fascinated uh, with uh, you know, the, the early intellectual movement in America, uh, Emerson Thoreau specifically, and also some times that we've had uh, exploring areas that they dwelled in, like Walden Pond. I think uh, Thoreau's cabin on Walden Pond was just a great inspiration for all of us. And that, you know, being in tune with uh, the ecology. The um, reason we use ecology a lot in the project and, and, uh, and, and not the, uh, the term sustainable uh, is because I don't think uh, Thoreau or Emerson really ever thought of uh, the world being sustainable. Their, their writings seem to be more insurgent, more provocative more about the environment and, and uh, not so, how do I say it, uh, status quo. When, 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 when you use the term sustainable, it doesn't get you far enough. Uh, it seems to, you know, it's about the next generation. It's, it's, a, it's a philosophy. It's not a science. It's, you certainly wouldn't want to have a, a sustainable marriage. You know, you want things to be growing, evolving, and, and healthy. And I think that uh, Thoreau and Emerson and Alcott, et cetera, and the writers of the time uh, also had this same uh, provocation. So uh, 
you know, we, we, we took, we kind of put away this notion of sustainability uh, influenced by these writers and thought about uh, the kind of the, the deeper notion, and I don't mean deep ecology, but the deeper notion of ecology itself and have a fully living uh, kind of structure. So essential to the Fab Tree Hab's construction or the growing process is pleaching, which as you mentioned um, in the documentation on your website, it's ancient uh, knowledge to gardening, but it's new to architecture. Can you talk a little bit about pleaching and what trees work best for this process? Sure. So pleaching has been around, you know, since for at least 2,500 years recorded uh, since Athens. Uh, I think that uh, it's nothing new. Man has always known that you can graft uh, trees together. Uh, basically, you, you slice two separate branches of the same species or in some cases different species and uh, you reconnect them uh, and, and create a, a singular vascular system. Uh, in, in, out of two trees. I think what we're doing that's that's much, much different than pleaching and is not in, in any of the literature that we've released uh, because of intellectual property reasons and patent reasons, uh, there is, we've decided to uh, introduce um, computation and rapid, tech, rapid prototyping technology uh, uh, alongside pleaching to kind of uh, control the growth. So uh, essentially, you, if you have this ancient garden te gardening technique, we've been using it for you know centuries. Uh, what's so new? Well, what, what's new is not the gardening technique itself, but our approach on how uh, how the plants are directed or the trees are directed. And we use uh, computer-controlled templates that uh, the plants are weaved in, and therefore we can really uh, precisely define the geometry and define the structure. So how long would it take to grow a home using this mix of ancient knowledge and new technology? Uh, well, that depends on the species. It depends on the climate. It depends on the size of the home, et cetera, et cetera. And, but one of the, we have a, a company that we're partnered with called Plantware, and uh, they're, they're working on the patent for very quickly growing, uh, you know, I'd say three-meter tall structures. Um, they're using aeroponics to do this, and ficus specifically is the species. Uh, the location is uh, outside, uh, well, it's outside the Negev um, in in Israel, uh, and you know they happen to be the world's best uh, aeroponic farmers. So they have a, a lot of agricultural technology that we don't have access to, and a lot of agricultural knowledge that uh, we also don't do as architects and engineers and planners. Um, it kind of makes up for a quasi-profession. So to grow something like this, for instance, in the tropics would be about uh, five to seven years. In Moscow, it would take about, uh, you know, 20 years. Fab tree have then could be grown pretty much anywhere in the world, or is it limited? Anywhere where trees grow, and you know, all you need is land. Uh, there, there are industries that do similar things. Uh, for instance, a Christmas tree. Uh, uh, pine trees are grown on, on large uh, agricultural reserves, and they're they're harvested, if, you know, every uh, seven to fifteen years. Uh, this, in this case, however, you can probably make a million homes for free with a positive uh, impact upon the environment, and people can live in them for you know a hundred plus years with just some plastering. What makes up the structural components of the fab tree have other than the tree itself? There's two types of of uh, uh, of plants that we're, we're looking at. Tr larger trees do the primary structural system. 
those are grafted together, um, such as like maple or, or dogwood, uh, elm as well, and that becomes a, that services as the main hull. Uh, the, the secondary system is more of a, a vine-based uh, uh, system or a, a, a semi-epiphyte. This is a kind of uh, plant that doesn't spend all its time uh, growing uh, a heavy trunk to support itself. Instead, it's about uh, leaf propagation. It maximizes the amount of leaves it has so, uh, so it can get more solar income and produce more food for itself. And it's parasitic in nature, so it would grow alongside a building or another tree. So in other words, it doesn't waste its energy uh, uh, keep, keeping itself standing. It stands on something else and then uh, uses its energy to make more food and make more leaves. So that would be the secondary structure. A great example is ficus is one particular um, species that would do that. Um, then the internal structure, the tertiary systems, is things, you know, traditions of cob, horsehair, plaster. These kinds of things would be uh, on the inside. And that the inside itself would be, you know, very stark and contemporary. Um, and you wouldn't really be able to tell that you're in a treehouse if that's your particular desire. The Fab Tree Hub is really a holistic design that considers the role of every system at work in the home. Can you talk to us about the systems and some of the solutions you propose when it comes to energy and water waste? Yeah, well, water is, uh, is certainly vital, uh, not only to keep the, the, your home alive, but to, to keep yourself alive and happy. Uh, so we use a, a gravity-fed harvesting system. Uh, so on the, on the roof, uh, it would be a harvester that uh, allows for a downward flow of water. And what this does is it translates water through many episodes until its final part where it goes into uh, a primordial soup uh, uh, that cleans it, but cleans it naturally. This is commonly known as a living machine by Dr. John Todd. But you have to imagine the beginning of the process. Uh, so you're taking a shower, and this would be probably the, the cleanest water that you would use, or drinking, for instance. And in those American, you know, shower, Hollywood showers, you're, you're there for about 30 to 40 minutes, and all this clean water goes off the body and down the drain into, a, you know, some sewage system traditionally. What we do is cycle downwards to uh, a toilet and call it gray water. And you, so after your shower, you then use the gray water, um, in the toilet, and that becomes, you know, black water and filters even further down in the tree, the fab tree hab, into the lower uh, portions of the house where the solids go into a composter uh, deep in the ground, and eventually, uh, and, and other liquids, sorry, other liquids would go out into the living machine, but eventually the composting system also goes into the living machine. Then in the living machine, it's cleaned through algae and, and various uh, types of fish, uh, it returns itself into the atmosphere. And what about the main energy source for the fab tree hat? Well, uh, the main energy source is sunlight, period. And that, that keeps your whole house alive. But if you want to power something like your TV, uh, trees won't power TVs. Uh, you'd you'd, you'd uh, have to have solar cells or other non-edible, non-living kind of energy uh, producers. Um, other things that we've looked at is... Uh, uh, supercilia, which is a, a, a device I made at the MIT Media Lab, and a variation on that, uh, uh, these uh, wind quills, which are essentially piezoelectric cells. And they, they act as uh, wind turbines, but feather-shaped wind turbines.
I saw those um, on one of the other sort of prototypes you had for the cradle to cradle design. I'm curious how how those work. I mean, how much wind that you need. It looks like they're. I mean, they're so small and they're less obtrusive. En en enough to power some light bulbs. Uh, minimal at best, but it's also minimal impact to make them. So you know, we, our early models were, were just using simply Q-tips on a tympanic membrane, just any poured kind of uh, natural rubber membrane, and it would produce an electric charge as two magnets pass over. Uh, we measured it with a voltmeter, which was kind of a surprise. The device was originally intended for haptic uh, input-output, but it's uh, also works as just producing energy very lightly. Um, not nowhere near as efficient as a you know a, a wind turbine, but something that uh, if, for instance, took over a vast amount of area uh, that that was useless, like the side of a building that normally has a billboard, or if you know a, a section of land not devoted for productive use, you can actually generate a significant charge that could be stored and used. But solar cells would be. Uh, the best way to go about it. I'm, I'm just investigating uh, alternative wind uh, devices. Interesting. Uh, another question I have is one of the statistics that's motivated the work that we do at the Institute Without Boundaries this year working on the World House Project is that by 2030 we'll need to build or perhaps grow uh, 96,000 homes a day to give people shelter to meet the demands of the population. Uh, what's your vision for the role of the FabTree have in helping to meet the, the world's housing needs? Well, the world's housing needs, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a, obviously a, a multi-layered uh, issue. Uh, it's not a crisis. I think that uh, what we're concerned with now with the Fab Tree Hab is policy alignment and value system alignment. I think those are the bigger issues. I don't think it's about invention so much or design so much or maybe even cooperation, but it's a, it's a barrier breakdown, a bureaucratic breakdown. That's probably the most important thing. And at the same time, a value system uh, uh, kind of a campaign. Uh, you know, Homer Simpson, as the typical American, is really not interested in the environment. He's not going to want devices that necessarily save the environment or hurt the environment. I don't think uh, he cares necessarily. Um, I think if you believe in, in producing something that's absolutely a wicked piece of technology that surpasses the current technology, then anyone's going to use it, especially if the cost is lower and it, it does uh, more things in a more efficient manner. Um, a great example of this kind of a leapfrog technology would be like a cell phone. Uh, you know, cell phone is fantastic. It's super cheap. It's ubiquitous. Everyone, you know, it's, it's almost, it's not replaced line communication, but it's, it makes for a good argument. I think green technology needs to do the same thing to be instilled in our value system. So, f for instance, uh, the, the Fab Tree Hab has to absolutely surpass, uh, you know, in all aspects, the current building industry. And if you, we need these paradigm shifts to change that value system. So, another issue with uh, the world housing crisis and with Fab Tree Habs is, is uh, defining uh, borders or actually kind of blurring them. Uh, it's, architects couldn't possibly spec uh, a, a fab tree hab. Uh, there's the, you know, the details of this home are, are, don't fall on the traditions of, of uh, the industry, and it's very hard to insure, uh, as far as insurance companies are concerned, uh, for leakage. It's hard to find bondable contractors to assemble it. In fact, uh, carpenters themselves are, isn't really the discipline that uh, would uh, assemble these things. You need a kind of half botanist, half tree sculptor to do something like that. 
planning commissions are another issue uh, in the world housing crisis. Uh, I, you know, normally they zone for a specific height size. How do you zone for a fab tree hab uh, when you know when your height is limited at 42 feet, yet your entire structure is a tree? Um, I, I think that it's uh, I think there's a, a kind of a, a major restructuring and, and if not a rethinking on, on how these things would fit into uh, the, the, the housing climate. Not to mention the fact that your square footage is, is going to increase over time, right, as it grows. The square footage, not necessarily the girth, the trunks of the trees would grow. Um, but you, you wouldn't have to have the, uh, the actual, yeah, but that's... <laughs> that, but, but the footprint, I guess. Yes, is... yes you, have a, you have an evolving and changing footprint. And also height. So, you know, how does a, a planning association possibly put limits and constraints on it, especially when it's a tree? You know, you know, it's just kind of crazy. The Fab Tree Hub has garnered a lot of media attention most recently with the article that was featured in the February issue of Dwell Magazine. I'm curious, the next step is for the project, and if there's continuing research that's being done. Yeah. The, well, uh, basically two steps: private. Um, privately, uh, there's some companies independently researching, or one company specifically, I don't know who else is out there that we're sanctioning, but one company looking at various details in their performance, um, things like a, you know, a soy-based plastic window that could fit into uh, you know, a living uh, tree home. That's lots of research, but uh, grants. So we spent about a year writing a grant for the EPA uh, to to get some more money to do this to do research on specific components. Um, I think ultimately, uh, two of the three anonymous peer reviewers said it was fantastic. One said it was ridiculous. And so that's a year of uh, you know our lives to do this. So uh, more time will be spent uh, rewriting grants. Uh, uh, to get more money to have this project uh, studied. There's also, I guess, the, the, I guess the the other component is the private. Uh, we do have a client uh, right near Beverly Hills that wants to build a 50% version, and we call that Matscape. I was going to ask when we might find this housing alternative or some part of it in the marketplace. And I guess if if you had your way about it, if I had my way about it, I would I would have it elective and free. Uh, I think that it's it's really something that uh, it, it excites many people, but it's it's about many lines of desire. It's it's almost like a, um, a you know it's a it's a, it's a seed in and of itself as a, as an ideation. Uh, I think more people that want to tackle it and have their own inputs on it uh, be better than kind of one very small group trying to change the entire world. So uh, it's it's propagation in the press and and wherever else it gets some notoriety is the best part of the project and I think uh, makes for uh, our contribution. Um, I don't, it's certainly not, a, not, a, not something that's meant to come from one kind of an authority. I think there's, there's probably many ways to do this. There's some people who imagine that you can do it through genetic engineering. Uh, I've been told it's impossible, but you know, I'd say give it a go. There's some people who, you know, nanotechnology folks who also think they can shape trees. I've you know, also heard that that's uh, not likely in the next 30 years, but why not? Um, our method is, uh, it, you know, uses technology that's been around for about, it's fairly new to architecture. It's been around for about 15 years and it's very, very realizable. So, we, you know, before we go ahead with uh, this, you know, the entire thing, we want to make sure that various components are going to work.
but I think the most important thing is to continue that the idea is out there and, and then to support it through, through uh, many points of departure. It's exciting that there's so much interest and that people are willing to take a piece of it and run and you're willing to share uh, your ideas for them to, to see where it goes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, the, the architectural community, though, is probably the only uh, sector that has the least interest in it. It seems that everybody else is much more excited. Uh, I think because architecture is often concerned with style and you know, or fashion um, or, you know, that would be a blanket statement, or branding. You know, uh, there's certainly, uh, you know, half the profession that's devoted to sustainability, but uh, the, it's the, the question of image is, seems to always be more important. And I think that architecture has been slow to react, uh, which is fine. Uh, even in my own work, this doesn't have any particular style or reference that uh, really speaks to other architects. And I don't know if that was intended or not. I just couldn't really tell you. It's certainly been thought in architecture. Loger, uh, his primitive hut, we've written about, you know, in the 16, 17-something, uh, you know, and many, many, it, you know, images of these kinds of things have been around, you know, in, in sublime uh, visions of gardens, etc. Uh, it seems like architecture today is, doesn't really seem to hit the vibe, while the rest of the planet and all the other disciplines are, love the funk and functionalism that it shows. Which discipline has been the most receptive and excited about the prospects? Uh, well, probably the arts. I, I think that uh, we get a lot of responses from uh, the arts community. Uh, there's a lot of uh, tree sculptors out there already and environmental artists out there already. It's a huge, huge group of them. And, and we come from a different kind of authority, you know, it's, which is that of, you know, computation and architecture and, uh, and planning and engineering. And I think the, the arts uh, seem to be most comfortable teaming up with us. Uh, Richard Reams has been another partner on the project. He's an arborsmith in, in Oregon who uh, builds living furniture. So he's pretty fantastic, and uh, many, many arborsmiths like him uh, all over the globe uh, seem to have uh, huddled around us to think about this project. You're also the executive director of Terraform, a nonprofit organization with an interesting mission. Can you talk to us more about Terraform and some of the other projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, we're, we're, we're here in New York City. Uh, if, you're, if you're ever around, you should come by and visit. The door's always open. Uh, but Terraform is essentially a, a philanthropic, humanitarian, architectural organization uh, that not only architecture, but it's also urban design and broad, broad thinking on uh, the environment and its relationship to the city. Uh, this includes things like uh, uh, mobility in the city. A lot of my projects work on cars. Uh, also, mobility off the planet Earth. Uh, I'm doing a, a project with NASA for a, a, a lunar experimental base. That, that it's a roving base, uh, and rethinking the city here on Earth, uh, specifically New York, is a large project um, we did for the History Channel, which I guess we we confronted the question of can Manhattan be fully self-sufficient in a hundred years? So the the city of the the twenty-second century within its own political borders, can it be completely self-sufficient, i.e. no inputs, no outputs? So imagine this Manhattan being absolutely biotic and filled with productive green spaces, you know, growing all of its food. Uh, you know, think of the, the protein equation. 
uh, keep the population also at a steady state, around 9 million. And, you know, energy has to be produced within its own borders. Waste has to be recycled within its own borders and constantly reused, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we started the reification of this uh, project for the History Channel. We did a large charrette and, and, and made visuals, uh, both models and drawings of this kind of a project. And we're continuing to do that. So we have uh, many people that uh, certainly volunteer their time, uh, especially in the statistical analysis, but uh, people here are, uh, well, we work every day more or less on uh, contributing to it. Can you talk just a little bit about what transportation looks like, what housing looks like in that futuristic Manhattan? Uh, yeah, well, the, the ultimate goal for, I guess, the city of tomorrow is that uh, the individual car is, is, is just removed from this, you know, the self-sufficient Manhattan. That all transit, especially high speed, is done underground um, as efficient as possible. But any transit that would remain on the surface or would be shared with pedestrians would be very safe, very soft, very gentle. Um, this, this theory is called uh, gentle congestion. The cars in the future would not need to go, or even cars today uh, that we can build, uh, faster than 30 miles an hour in a downtown core. would be a shared ownership model, would have footprints uh, much smaller than even the smart car, would articulate to accept all different body sizes, uh, would be intelligent, they'd communicate electronically to each other. Uh, in fact, they'd, they'd act much like a, you know, a horse. And a, uh, I think the, the horse and, and human relationship has been uh, pretty fantastic in the past. And cars today don't even have the intelligence of a horse. Uh, they'll, you know, a car would easily commit suicide or kill somebody without thinking twice. So, you know, our prospect for the future is that, in principle, uh, no one would ever die from a car accident again. Uh, not only because they're intelligent, but their their very materials and makeup would be soft and pleated and and human-like, organic. And this was done by rethinking the wheel uh, at the MIT Media Lab, where we put the entire solution space of the car inside a wheel, and you just add any kind of volume uh, for occupants. So uh, you have this nice, soft, uh, super smart wheel or robot wheel. Uh, that's omnidirectional and can move in flocks and herds and talk to municipal grid and talk to other wheels. And just add a very soft bodily-like envelope to those, to that wheel or wheels, depending on how many you need, and that would be your, your vehicle. Sounds really fascinating. Yeah, the, con the concept is a dissertation. It's, it's very hard to unpack in one minute, but uh, it's, uh, you know, we, we did the background work and uh, on, on doing wheels and and uh, now it's about thinking of cars moving in parliaments and flocks and very soft uh, kind of uh, dense urban conditions that uh, were just like people gathering, uh, vehicles would be a part of that stream. Interesting. Is that stemming from some of the research you did with Frank Gehry on the concept car, the GM? Uh, yeah, yeah. For four years I worked, worked on that concept car with General Motors. Uh, Frank Gehry was the uh, head designer. Then eventually I went to go work in his office uh, in Los Angeles on a, a cluster of skyscrapers, also dealing with the issue of mobility, but mobility via elevating, not uh, and sky lobbies, not uh, automobiles.
can touch on so many different facets of the research we're doing um, this semester, and I could ask you a lot more questions, but I know you're busy, and I, I appreciate the time that you've given us. I do have one last but very important question, especially <laughs> sure. for someone who's rethinking definitions of housing, transportation, urban design, I guess rethinking everything about the way we live. question is, what does home mean to you? Uh, hmm. Mom spaghetti? I would agree with that. So do you foresee at some point yourself living in a fab tree have <laughs> or, or some variation? Oh, I hope to God I don't become one of those, you know, hypocritical, self-loving, nasty-ass uh, architects that just, uh, you know, preach one thing uh, and design this kind of whatever it might be and then live in, an, you know, in some Victorian mansion someplace off, you know, the coast. Or you know, or in a just a loft, generic loft, someplace tucked away in Brooklyn. Um, I would love to live in one of them. I I don't know how long it would take to to do that for myself and to be my own client. Uh, it's kind of tough. I've got a you know a billion other things to deal with, but uh, yeah, I, I, who knows? I mean, if you, I think the best thing I can do is contribute to visions, uh, much in the same fashion as the French Enlightenment. Um, I think that fantasies do are are, are wonderful, and that uh, architects should spend more time dreaming, and uh, you know, and, and articulating those dreams uh, to some level of reification than than just spending 90% of their day, uh, you know, arguing with contractors and and uh, compromising with clients. I think that's a, a great thought to end on. Thanks again for joining us on World House Radio, and I wish you much success with, with wherever the Fab Tree Have goes and um, all of your other projects. Thanks again for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for being interested. For more information on Dr. Mitchell Joachim and the Fab Tree Have, check out the links on our website, www.worldhouse.ca. The music used in today's program was chosen because the songs had the word house in their titles and because these songs were created by independent artists willing to share their music online for free. The artists can be found on garageband.com, a website promoting new and emerging independent musicians. Links to the artists can also be found at our website. And most importantly, World House Radio is a project of the Institute Without Boundaries. To learn more about the program and the work we're doing on the World House Project, please visit www.worldhouse.ca or www.institutewithoutboundaries.com. Join us next week for another episode of World House Radio Stories of Home.